0: So today's passage, Matthew 6, I'm actually starting in verse 24 through 34, the end of the chapter. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble.
1: Thank you, Nat. Well, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Matthew. And particularly this summer on the Sermon on the Mount, in the last four weeks, uh, from the Lord's Prayer uh, to this sermon today, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' challenges us to consider what or whom we are prioritizing. And today specifically, we're going to examine what Jesus said about prioritizing in an anxious age. About 15 years ago, if there was ever a day to be anxious, in fact, a day that would define anxiousness, I had that day. You see, myself and a group of five other people, we met together in the Orlando airport, and we were getting ready to travel on somewhat of a clandestine trip to a small island off the coast of Florida, the island of Cuba. Now, we had special permission from the U.S. government Uh, to travel from our church on a humanitarian mission to Cuba. And we were going there to visit with pastors and ministries in that country. But we didn't really want the Cuban government to know why we were going to be in their country. We didn't want undue scrutiny to come to the pastors and ministries that we were going to spend time with over the course of that week. So standing there in the Orlando airport, I felt a little bit like Jason Bourne or Ethan Hunt going out on this mission. We decided that until we got out of the airport in Havana. We would act as independent tourists. We weren't going to look like a group, so we boarded our plane, and we took a domestic flight from Orlando to Nassau, Bahamas. And we landed at their domestic terminal. We went through, we ripped the bags off our suitcases, we threw away our boarding passes, and we went back into the international terminal and set our destination as Havana, Cuba. Really felt like Jason Bourne at this point in time. Well, Anxiety started building inside of me as I started walking across that tarmac in Nassau Bahamas towards the Cuban Airlines airplane, or at least that's what they called it. I don't know what it was. It defied the laws of aerodynamics sitting on the ground. It looked more like a garbage truck that someone had put wings on. I have never seen a square airplane until that day. Well, we walked out to this airplane, and in fact, I looked at it. There were no doors on the plane, but there was a ramp from the back end that was down that everybody was walking up. So started walking up, and I was on business class for this flight. So I walked up the back of the plane and passed economy class, which was some crates of chickens and goats and luggage all mixed together. And I was a couple rows in front of them. I had a metal bench with some padding on it and a seat belt out of a 1950 Ford, I think. And uh, let's say I was sweating profusely at this point in time. My heart rate was racing. How in the world were they going to get this garbage truck off the runway and into the air? Somehow they managed. I had a window seat for this rackety flight with chickens behind me talking to me the whole flight. And that was the best part, was flying over this beautiful water down to Cuba, and somehow the garbage truck dropped out of the air and landed on that tarmac, and I thought, well, we're down, and then I looked out the windows, and we were being escorted down the runway by two Jeeps with military guys with machine guns mounted on the Jeep, and I thought, it's all over. They found out who we were. They're going to lock us up. I realized that that was just a normal Cuban greeting party, and as we got up to the terminal, they peeled off and went their own way, and heart rate went down a little bit more we walked into the terminal and somehow my friends who were not supposed to be my friends at this point in time in that process of leaving NASA and getting to Havana lost their bags and I I can't for the life of me to this day figure out how that happened but a couple of them lost bags and so I was told to go into the airport and wait without looking like I was waiting for my friends who weren't supposed to be my friends And so I'm standing there at the baggage claim, sweating profusely. I mean, if you dumped a bucket of water over my head, I don't think I would have looked much different at this point in time. The nervousness is rising. I look to my right very casually, standing there. And I notice that a soldier, a military officer with this big AK-47 around his head is staring directly at me, piercing eyes looking at me. He slowly starts wandering over toward me and... Like out of a movie, he goes, papers. And so I hand him my passport and my boarding pass and I'm trying to be calm and I'm just thinking about some prison cell that's underneath the Cuban airport that I'm going to be in for the rest of my life. So he starts asking me questions and I started off okay, clearly nervous. And in my head, I'm like, I'm just a tourist. I'm just a tourist. And before long, I was a computer salesman from New Jersey. I have no idea why I told him that. (laughs) Clearly, I am not Jason Bourne or Ethan Hunt. (laughs) And so he starts questioning me, and then I realize he's not speaking with broken English anymore. He's speaking like full-on English. This guy knows English. This guy is no ordinary soldier. Well... Perhaps we are not regularly getting questioned by Cuban soldiers with AK-47s. But the reality is that we live in an anxious age. Everything comes at us with a heightened intensity. And you throw on top of that, let's say, things like a global pandemic, inflation, a war in Europe, crime, anger in society. How about this one? How about the National Weather Service predictions? I mean, even strong thunderstorms now are called duratios. I mean, when did they start giving those names? Everything makes you nervous. It sounds scarier. The end of our text today says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Is that not the truth? The reality of our sin-affected world is that there is always going to be trouble, and it affects each one of us differently. And Jesus, in his teaching and throughout the gospel, actually teaches on anxiety a number of times. The pastor Legan Duncan says, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it empties today of its strength. Well, for anyone here who's like me who struggles with anxiety, you have felt that emptying of strength that anxiety brings. I would expect you get frustrated. And maybe, like me, you get anxious about being anxious. I mean, who wants to be anxious? I know I don't, yet so often I can find myself fairly debilitated and exhausted by worry. So before we dive into the heart of this sermon here today, I felt it necessary to say this. I've read and heard a lot of solutions to deal with my anxious thoughts and feelings, some helpful, many unhelpful, and some hurtful. If you're struggling with anxiety, hear this from a fellow struggler. We need to seek and receive help and it's okay. Today our passage points generally to anxiety, especially in application. So listen and consider and seek as we go through this. There is no doubt that part of our ability to overcome anxiety is spiritual and Jesus lays out a pretty good plan here in the word to help us. It's not taxing And it's not condemning. His plan helps us to focus our minds and attention where they ultimately belong. He compels us throughout Scripture that He is gentle and lowly and waiting for us to turn to Him and seek Him and receive His grace. This is not a spiritual platitude to make you feel guilty. This is from someone who also has dealt with anxiety. The truth about a loving Father who values relationships with us and calls us his friend. We need to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and receive the grace of a good and very generous Father. We also need to enlist our, our friends and family to support us and walk with us. We are wired for relationship. Isolation only makes things worse. And it is worse to be isolated than deal with the unknowns of what someone may say, say or think about us. We need to stay engaged with others. And for some of us, we may need to see a doctor, and it's okay. God, in his goodness, has equipped people to help us navigate things that go on inside of our bodies that we just can't simply understand. And sometimes we need a bit more help to quiet our minds and calm our hearts. So while today's text generally deals with anxiety, it does specifically deal with a type of anxiety that is harmful and sinful. So again, it generally deals with anxiety, but it specifically deals with the type of anxiety that's harmful and sinful. It's a type of anxiety that focuses our attention on our ability to be in control and our ambition in gaining things in this life that we prioritize and value more than we value the things that God values. And when we put ourselves and when we put things over God, I think we all know theologically and spiritually and practically That's a path towards personal and spiritual destruction. So today we're going to do three things. We're going to identify the problem that Jesus lays out in verses 24 to 27. And then we're going to consider God's provision in verses 28 to 32. And then we will attempt to align our hearts to seek God's priorities in verses 33 to 34. Verse 24, Matthew 6:24. if you have your Bibles open, it says, You cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. I took a verse from Josh Anderson's sermon last week because verse 25 starts out with that big therefore. So we need to look at what the therefore is there for. Jesus wants us to clearly understand that serving two masters is going to find short lived success in our lives. One is going to dominate us. It says, in fact, that one we will devote ourselves to and the other we are going to despise. And therein lies one of the biggest battles in our world for all of mankind. God versus money, or mammon, or treasure, or riches, depending on how your Bible translates that. And in verse 25, we have the first of five times that Jesus uses the word anxiety in our passage. He says, Do not be anxious about your life. These verses, again, I believe, can generally be applied to anxiety, but there's a primary focus here, and that is a focus about anxiety of control and ambition and ill placed priorities and desires. Jesus is warning us about a problem of anxiousness that places our desires and values for food and drink and our bodies in a context that we have a different master than Him. And everything in our world is coming after us to treasure things over God. Not only were we pursued every single day in advertising on TV, but now through targeted advertising through social media. And it's the most tantalizing foods and cars and vacations and clothings, all things that we're told we desperately need. But on the other side, we're also being told and pursued that pursuing God and prioritizing God in our lives is foolish. The world is loud, and their alluring voice to me is, is reminiscent of a certain serpent in a certain garden that made promises which seem satisfying but led to despair and led to destruction. The reality is that Satan has not changed his play. He knows he can manipulate our desires. John Piper says, Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something, accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. Anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something, accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. I think there's two sinful pathways that this type of anxious desire can take us. One is anxious unbelief, where we want to be in control. I don't know about you, but this is where I tend to land. I'm anxious about things that are going to happen, so I I seek to be in control of those things to help determine the outcome of what they're going to be like. We can become fixated on sickness or Fear or accidents or financial disaster, losing our jobs or issues with our kids, all kinds of future unknowns that we don't know are going to happen. And so we put our trust in our ability to secure our future, and we lose sight of God. And there's nothing wrong with good planning and good preparation, and there's plenty of illustrations of that throughout Scripture, from Joseph in his storehouses to the Proverbs talking about ants being wise and storing up. But Jesus is not condemning our proper provision for the future, and he's not condemning an appropriate concern for the present. But we can get so tied up in anxiously trying to control the unknown that our priority becomes the control of the unknown rather than living in the present. Anxious unbelief. We want to be in control, and essentially, we want to play the part of God. And the second way that anxious desire can take us is that is towards ambition. We're gaining in this temporal world, and we, we try to do that over the span of our lives, we become fixated and preoccupied with acquiring. We work and we toil in pursuit of things, and in fact, we have an overestimation of the value of earthly treasures. Luke 12, which is the gospel text of this section in Matthew 6, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man, a rich man that thought he could secure his comfort and peace into the future by tearing down his storehouses and building bigger ones and filling those up. And in the parable, the man, the rich man says this, he says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry, be merry, but God turns to that rich man and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If our desire to be in control and our ill-placed ambition dominates our lives, our master becomes something very, very different than God. And our anxious pursuit of these things prioritizes our own wants and desires over God's. I found these uh, new statistics that were released by Capital One. Listen to this: Seventy-seven percent of Americans report feeling anxious about their financial situation. Fifty-eight percent feel that finances control their lives. Fifty-two percent of people have difficulty controlling their money-related worries. Americans are most worried about their financial future, that stuff that's way out there ahead of us. 68% are worried about, are they going to have enough money to retire? 56% are worried about keeping up with the cost of living, and I know I fall into that camp at times. And 45% are worried about managing debt levels. And as financial stress reaches into people's lives, 43% say they feel fatigued, 42% have a hard time concentrating at work. 41% have a hard time sleeping. And 25% of people that were polled said it affects their relationships. And I would suspect that number is probably a bit higher. I think today we have a clear case of the timeless truth of Scripture. When Jesus says we have a problem, he knew what he was talking about. But here's the beauty of Jesus, and here's the beauty of Scripture. He does not just tell us about our problem, but He gives us a pathway to restoration. Jesus is urging us to stop our pursuits, to stop our anxious toil, and look at our misaligned priorities. Matthew 6 26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? We need to open our eyes and observe what he has done and what he is doing and how that intersects with our lives. When we prioritize the wrong desire, we lose perspective on the big picture. That wily serpent focused Adam's and Eve's attention on a tree, on a piece of fruit, on one tantalizing idea. When in reality, they were standing in the middle of the most amazing garden with the most amazing peace and provision probably anyone on this planet has ever experienced. Like Adam and Eve, we lose our perspective in the immediacy of our felt needs and they, they overwhelm us and we lose sense of a bigger reality. Our vision becomes blinded to the broader reality of God's goodness And the purpose of our lives, we become like horses with blinders on, so that all we see is what is right in front of us. We work harder, we push, we toil, we buy, we store up. We become anxious about things that will pass away and will not even extend our lives a single hour. There are too many true to life stories that we personally know or have heard of, of people who have tried to build their own personal kingdoms. A huge business, multiple houses, cars, maybe even planes. They worked and they worked and when they died, they left a kingdom they barely enjoyed because they didn't have time. Perhaps they left a family that was broken or a business or a kingdom that was simply sold away. And Jesus' parable from Luke 12, hits pretty close to home with these stories. There's a question that Jesus asked in Matthew 16. We probably have all heard at one time, but it's, Good to think about in this context today. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, so far today, we've identified the problem of wrongly prioritized desires. And now Jesus compels us to consider God's provision. So let's look again at the text in Matthew 6, starting at verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We can get ourselves so wrapped up into the pursuit of things, we lose our perspective on our priorities, and in so doing, we lose our perspective on who ultimately is our provider. We work ourselves to death so that we can buy more stuff. We put our trust in ourselves to acquire comforts that won't ultimately give us comfort. And Jesus compels us in this passage to use our minds and consider who our Heavenly Father is and what he has done. When we get anxious about how we're going to get what we think we need, we need to stop. We need to quiet our minds and we need to consider God's hand of providence. God's hand of providence takes care of his creation. He provides all the necessary elements for life to flourish as it depends on him. Whether that's food for the birds, the natural beauty of the lilies, or the ability for grass to grow and thrive in so many different climates. God, in his providence, has given us, mankind, the ability to use our minds and our hands and our bodies to work and to build and to provide. Work is part of our lives, but the end product of our work is not simply to acquire. the reality, the end product of our lives should be gratitude and generosity. Our role is to reflect the glory of God to all people. He worked and he rested and he generously pours out an abundance of blessing upon us. And when we lose sight of this, our pursuits become self-focused and self-driven. We create a self-made reality that is initiated by us and for us. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this text in the message, I think, pretty well hits the mark. He says, don't be so preoccupied with getting so you can't respond to God's giving. Let me read that again. Don't be so preoccupied with getting so you can't respond to God's giving. He goes on to say, people who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, and God provisions. I hope this afternoon you see what's happening here in the text. Jesus, Jesus is giving us a formula to deal with sin-filled anxiety for things. An anxiety about money and riches and things that are, puts our desires and hearts in direct competition with our desire for Him. He's warned us we can't serve two masters. One we're going to love. And the other we're going to despise. And now he gives us a pathway to reorient our desires and quiet our anxious toil. He urges us to think about our priorities and then consider God's provision. And who ultimately provides for us. Where are we laying our trust in ourselves and our abilities? Or in the one that gives breath to our lungs and the air to breathe and minds to think? A pastor named Mark Dunn says, The secret of freedom from anxiety is freedom from ourselves and abandonment of our own plans. But that spirit emerges in our lives only when our minds are filled with the knowledge that our Father can be trusted implicitly to supply everything we need. Well... I don't want you to leave here with any undue anxiety, so I want to let you know I made it out of the airport in Havana, Cuba. And I learned a couple of valuable lessons on that trip to Cuba. First, when I anxiously depend on my ability to solve a situation and talk my way out of a situation with a Cuban military officer with an AK-47, I stopped trusting in God's provision. God fully had that situation under control. He knew everything that would happen. Secondly, over the course of our trip, we interacted with pastors in Havana and out in the rural countryside small, small, very, very poor villages. And their reality that they lived in would make any of us anxious on a day-to-day basis. Living under Castro's regime, which meant that everybody, nobody could trust anybody in the country. You never knew who was going to rat you out and say that this was a pastor, this person was doing this, and try to get some favor by the government. Pastors were always being watched. They had no one they could trust. They had to gather in small gatherings. Once Fidel took power in Cuba until present day, you're not allowed to have church gatherings over 25 people. So that meant no church buildings have been built since Castro took over. People meet in their homes. And people have to trickle into their homes one or two at a time so it doesn't look like a group is gathering together. And in fact, in one rural village, their Sunday school was in a chicken coop behind the house so that no one thought that they were out there teaching the children something anti-Fidel Castro. The people that hosted us had to hide eggs and coffee in their closets so they could feed us and host us while we were there. They had a limit on the amount of eggs and coffee that any one family could buy in any given week. So friends and family and parts of their church snuck in eggs and coffee to their house just to care for us. Cubans aren't allowed to eat pork, believe it or not. I don't know how the Cuban sandwich works, but they're not allowed to eat pork. Pork is an export of Cuba. You're not allowed to eat it as if you are a citizen of Cuba. They're not allowed to go into hotels. They're not allowed to go to any of the places that all the tourists go to. The reality for these pastors in Cuba was instead of being dominated by worry and anxiety, they had a right perspective on their priorities and a dependence on God for his provision, which led them to having actually a growing church movement and contagious joy and service regardless of their daily struggles. And I have seen this over and over again in shanty towns in South Africa and slums in Bangladesh, remote villages in Africa, and refugee camps in Europe. I've seen real poverty. I've seen people who do not know what they're going to eat that day and the clothes they have, if they have clothes, are the only ones that are on their body. People desperate for food and drink and clothing. Yet what I have also seen among God's people in each of those situations is joy. Joy that no money could ever buy. Randy Elkhorn says, only when we gain an eternal perspective will we eagerly follow our Lord's command to devote our brief lives on earth to the pursuit of of eternal treasure. We've identified the problem of our our priorities. We have considered God's provision. And lastly, Jesus gives us one final waypoint in this journey, and that is to seek God's priorities. Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what are we seeking? We have to ask ourselves that question. What am I seeking? Last week, Josh Anderson led us to consider two different masters, God or money. Who controls our desires or interests? Which do we seek? Are we letting the power of God rule our lives or the voice of sinful, self-centered desires that are always going to leave us wanting? Two weeks ago, Matt Vent led us to consider what we treasure in our hearts. Do we treasure the things that will rot and rust and be taken away? Or is the value of the kingdom like the parable of the man who found the treasure in the field and went and sold everything so that he could buy that field? Do we have humble hearts? And when we seek the Lord in prayer, do we just come to him petitioning for our wants and desires? As Josh Fenske taught us three weeks ago, do we come with humble submission, with prayers that submit us to his kingship and to his provision? So how do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How do we seek kingdom priorities? It starts out with our prayer life. And I think it goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. We seek God's priorities. We start by acknowledging his reign and rule over everything, over every aspect of our life. We seek his provision for our daily needs. And we request his deliverance from our sinful temptation and the evil that is out there that seeks to entice our hearts. God has given us eyes, the lamp of the body, so that we can look and orient our perspective in a way that realigns our priorities so the reality of an anxious pursuit of our desires pales in comparison to the treasure of Christ. He's given us minds to consider his provision and the generous goodness in both the practical and spiritual blessings he's provided us. And then God pursues us and equips us to seek his priorities that are going to bring value and treasure and reward to degrees that we can never imagine now and into eternity. This passage ends with a reminder. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think we all know there's going to be enough in this life to cause concern. Whether that is a trip to Cuba or the economy or political divisiveness or that weatherman. We don't need to add anxiousness by pursuing ill-placed desires. Remember what I said earlier today? I said anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. it empties today of its strength. And today, we have an opportunity here and respond to the teaching of Christ. Only when we think with minds that have been instructed by Christ will we begin to live in a way that benefits the kingdom of Christ. So where in this day will our priorities lead? Well, what I love about the teaching of Jesus is it's both convicting and comforting. And he doesn't just lay out how our hearts are deceived, but he reminds us of his goodness and he equips us to go in the direction that we need to go. And back over there in Luke 12, that complimentary passage, this is how Jesus wraps up this teaching. He says, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't just leave it there. That would have been sufficient. That would have helped refocus our attention to Him and the goodness of His provision to us. Jesus decides to push us a little bit more. He says, fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're reminded gently of God's provision for his people, his flock. And then we're pointed to prioritize our resources in a way that will benefit others and will take our anxious focus away from ourselves. The pastor, Alexander McLaren, wraps up this whole section of scripture by saying this. Fill the present with faith, patient waiting, honest work, wise observation of God's lessons in nature and providence of grace live in God's future, work in the present. Accept a present Christ, a present Spirit, a present Father, present forgiveness, and present redemption. If our communion stewards can come forward in this present moment, let's consider God's goodness and seek His present redemption. And as we take communion today, we have an opportunity to, to see the problem of our sin and consider God's provision of forgiveness and seek his redemption and grace that is freely given. Our reality is that we not only anxiously toil after things to fill our lives on earth, but we tend to also anxiously try to earn God's good favor and blessing through anxious attempts of being good enough for him to accept. Scripture tells us that we're saved by faith. Not by any of our anxious toil and works. God's goodness of salvation and provision are a gift and there are absolutely no strings attached to that. If you're with us today and you don't know Jesus, we'd ask that you would stay in your seats as we take communion.